I was promised there would not be any more than 40 people here today. <laughs> uh, my name is Charlie, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm a member of Al-Anon. I would love to be a member of Alateen, except I'm way too old, and I'm nowhere near mature enough. And um, and I and I am really thankful to be here. I want to thank Carol for asking me and and uh, and the support that I've gotten in this program from people like Carol and Mark and Jeremy and Tom and Christine and let's see, can we go through the list? Yeah, Carol and and um, and Ernie and Wally and and. Uh, Mindy and Cheryl and Amy and Amy with a Y and Nancy and tall Nancy and uh, Jerry, that's angry Jerry, and Barb. And, uh, and I think what you get from that is that, that what I discovered is it isn't all about me. It's all about the fact that it isn't about me. It's all about the people of this program, this 12-step program, this little gift from God that allows me to be vertical. And I, I have to tell you that the drinking, I mean, I'm an alcoholic, so drinking was part of my life. That wasn't going to kill me. That's what kept me alive. I drank to stay alive. What was going to kill me is what I came to Al-Anon for. And that was the deep desire to make everything else okay so I had a right to be here. Because otherwise I had no right to be here. I knew that from a very early age. I knew that there was something wrong with me being on this planet my sponsor used to refer to it as being stuck behind the invisible protective shield, and that really dates me because that's a, that's a toothpaste ad, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. But, um, and that was true. I, I felt like I was from another planet. I, I was like E.T. 15 years before they made that movie. Uh, you know, I really felt like there was a ship that dropped me off and made a mistake and never came back. Um, I fantasized about what my life was supposed to be, and then I tried to fit into that. And growing up in an alcoholic family was an exciting adventure, especially considering I had no clue that that's what that was. Um, I, I had never seen anybody else's family to live in, so apart from Beaver Cleaver and a few other things on television, um, I had no, no way to tell what was wrong with my family, and my family was happy to encourage me with the, to believe that what was wrong with my family was me. <clears throat> and that's perfectly normal for a child. Um, take a two-year-old next door to a birthday party and watch them. They are terrified about the fact that they're not at their birthday party because everything is about them and there's a party over there. It must be mine. Well, in a family where things are going screwy, it must be me. It must be me. And they say, yeah, it's you. Yeah, it's you. Um, now, understand that one of the things that happens when I grew up in an alcoholic family was I learned how to be an alcoholic and I learned how to take care of an alcoholic. I, I learned the rules uh, to live in an alcoholic family and I learned the roles. And the rules and the roles basically are how I live my life. The only people in the planet who will accept those rules and roles are alcoholics and children of alcoholics and wives and husbands of alcoholics and parents and, and us, basically. <laughs> And um, I was very blessed because I walked into my first meeting, an AA meeting, with my drunken girlfriend because I was a very good Al-Anon alcoholic because I had a girlfriend who drank really badly. <laughs> I, on the other hand, would stay okay, drive her home, go home and get drunk. And I knew she was an alcoholic because she clanked when she walked. You know, she had <laughs> bottles in her pockets. And... Uh, we li I lived in Wellesley. I was, I was born just up the road here in Wellesley, and I grew up rich, and I grew up without a first name. Um, I was Clarence's grandson. That was my name all through school, junior high school, high school, even when I came back from college. Oh, you're Clarence's grandson. Uh, yeah, I had a first name, but nobody knew it. Uh, my grandfather was a big mover shaker in the town for a long time. Um, things that he did, for example, was they bought the poor farm, he and some other guys, and they made it into a country club, um, which is on the road to Babson, if you want to take a trip. Um, uh, there was a, he had a, 
a little row with a banker, and so he started a bank with a couple of other people, and he started another bank. I mean, he was, everybody knew him. When he died, there were 3,500 people at his funeral, and he was 80-something. When you're 80-something and you have a funeral, nine people show up, you know, <laughs> not my grandfather. The only time we ever had policemen at our house was when he died. We had four police cars on the front of the house guarding it. You know, we didn't have the violent alcoholism. We didn't have the throwing things. We had the don't make a sound alcoholism. Don't express yourself alcoholism. Check it out first. So the first rule that I got was don't talk. And as you can see, that isn't working. <coughs> um, what they meant was don't talk about anything important. Be verbal. That's okay. But don't talk about serious stuff, like what's really going on, because we will shut you down. You can talk about the weather, you can talk about baseball, you can talk about the politics, you can talk about anything you want, as long as it isn't anything valid and real for somebody your age. And at seven, talking about politics is really exciting. You know? <laughs> I, was a, I was a hit at the bridge club, I want to tell you. Um, one woman came up to me and said, you know, you're never going to be a diplomat. And I said, no, I'm a Republican. <laughs> I was really good at, at entertaining adults. And, um, and, and don't talk is a very important rule. Because if people talk, especially children, somebody's going to hear something they don't want to hear. Like, what is wrong with this family? Everybody's nuts. It's Christmas. What's wrong? I was not allowed to talk. I was also not allowed to tell. So I couldn't talk in my house. And I couldn't go outside my house and tell. And just in case I had, an attempt, had a temptation to do so, um, we pass laws that prevent children from doing that. Because if you tell somebody what's going on at home, they punish you and they talk with your parents. So if I went outside and, say, told my English teacher that I feel really scared all the time and want to die, uh, my English teacher is going to call social services. And what are they going to do? They're going to put me in a foster home where I don't know anybody. <laughs> and they're going to talk to my mother. They're going to talk to my grandfather, and they're going to say, we don't know what's wrong with him. And he, they're going to say, neither do we. And this is a big help for a kid. So you learn pretty quickly. You don't tell anybody what's going on in this family. And then there are, they have these little slogans like, blood is thicker than water. You know, family first. <laughs> okay. And then uh, there's another one called don't trust. Don't trust anybody because they will let you down. Now, there's a flip side to that, which is you... Charlie must always be ready and trustworthy and loyal and ready to jump right in. I am a jumper in. <laughs> I am an insane jumper in. I've been jumping into things since I can remember. And I'll give you an example. One night at 3 o'clock in the morning, I got a call from somebody I didn't know. This is before I stopped drinking and got into this program. The call was from somebody who said, I know somebody who knows somebody who knows you, and my friend that you don't know is having trouble with her girlfriend, and they're having a fight, and they're over on such and such a street in Wellesley Hills. Can you go over and straighten this out? <laughs> and I did. <laughs> I went over, and there were two lovely lesbians chasing each other around the kitchen with knives, who immediately looked at this straight guy and said, kill him. <laughs> I was in big trouble. But that's what I would do. And I, I, I calmed it down, I want to tell you. I calmed it down. I was in the Boy Rangers. My, my Indian name was Peacemaker. So it was, there was something really strange about growing up in an alcoholic family. Don't trust anybody, but always be ready. Be, be Superman. Have that suit on, ready to jump into the fray. Now, what good is that? You know, you get yourself killed. Unless you have a girlfriend who's a drunk. Unless you have a parent who's a problem, unless you have a, a child who's a mess. If you're always ready for them to create a mess, you have something to do all the time, even though, like me, you feel like you're not worth anything. They provide you worth. They provided me worth. My mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, the maids that came to the house and left, the, my brother, my brother's wife, everybody, there was an opportunity for me to be of value. And that's the only place I got my value from was by trying to be for them. The last rule is the one that kills us. It's the one don't feel. Don't feel anything. <coughs> because you have to check it out first. It might not fit with our plans. So I remember coming home from school once 
with a, an A. And I was not a student that was reminded all the time of how brilliant I am. And I had an A on something that I was not expected to get an A on, and I touched the front door handle, and I remember the A going away, and the joy going away, and the yippee going away, and I knew already that I had to find out how I was supposed to be before I could be that. This is not spontaneity. <laughs> this is not childhood. This is walking into a corporate room where you realize you're in the midst of layoffs and putting on a good front so you don't get laid off first. I was a child. I live here. And I'm worried about what mood I'm supposed to be in to fit with the mood that's already there. My grandmother would click a coffee cup on a, on a saucer and the whole house's mood would change. It was like, clink, uh-oh. <laughs> you know? And I was allowed to have one sort of emotion, and that was called depression, because it's quiet. And if I could be depressed, I could be left alone, not get in trouble, and everybody was pleased because I wasn't making any noise. And I learned to do that. I had a basement playroom. I seldom turned the lights on. There was a TV in the, and this was when TVs had, remember, like that? And I would turn the TV on, and sometimes I didn't care if there was a program on. I would make one up in my head just because it was easier than having noise. Well, don't talk, don't trust, don't tell, don't feel doesn't work. Especially doesn't work for a 9-year-old or a 7-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. In fact, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Maybe in the Army, but not, on, not walking around in civilian clothes. And what happens is... I have to talk, I have to trust, I have to tell, I have to feel, and I'm not allowed to. So it goes in and stays in there. And then in, I think it was fourth grade, I beat up the largest kid at Honeywell School, who was, I think, in sixth grade for the ninth time. And um, he was very big, and everybody was scared of him, and he cut the bubbler line. You know, and, and if you've ever seen Honeywell School, before they started adding on to it, there was a big playground and the water line ran all the way across underneath the ground to the bubbler at the corner of the school. So in the spring, when the sun beat down on that, it was about 140 degree water for about an hour, which is not how long recess is. So it was only the very last people who got cold water and he cut through to get cold water and I took him down. It took him down big time. It took three teachers to prime, prime off. Miss Stairs took, had to pull us apart, and she was way too old to be doing this kind of stuff. But what was really weird is I was scared of me. I didn't know where that came from. I must be crazy. I must be from another planet. I'm like this animal, this violent thing inside this little wimpy body. This fourth grader shouldn't be taking down Peter, who's this big. And I did. And I really thought I was going to kill him, and so did they, it turns out, because I had his head in the water, and he was sort of bubbling, <laughs> and he was underwater. And so I, I kept a better lid on it for a long time. And I, I learned to drink a little bit, but I didn't immediately kick up to drinking at that point because it really wasn't around, and it was very carefully monitored by the people who wanted it more than I did. Uh, <clears throat> but I do remember that in high school, I was sent off to various schools at various times because they didn't fit most places. Commonwealth School in Boston was a, a ritzy, fancy school, and I got thrown out of there. They asked me not to come back. Um, and I went to a school in New York State. Um, and one of the high school football players at that school wouldn't leave my room after dark. It was lights out. I was a senior. He was a sophomore. He was the size of a house. He was a running back or something. And I said, if you don't leave the room, I'm going to kick you in the ear. And I did. And I broke things in his ear in his face and this wasn't good it was like where the hell did that come well he was such a macho guy he didn't complain a lot and I got yelled at but nothing really serious happened except in my head which was that's proof I am a dangerous human being I cannot be left alone I've got to do something and, and it was about the time I could start drinking and I did and it kept a lid on everything it was all of a sudden I could be normal I thought and I could pursue my object of helping everybody so I could feel valuable and that didn't work either and the drinking took off and the drinking is silly and stupid because it was my medicine that it then turned on me. And when I was 34, as I'm dragging my girlfriend to an AA meeting, they said, you can't come here. I said, why? And because you know this person. There was somebody in the meeting that we both knew, and my girlfriend didn't want us to be seen together. So they sent me to an Al-Anon meeting around the corner at Leonard Morse Hospital. 
in the, in the, uh, in the doctor's lounge Sunday night. It was pretty funny. And I went down and I sat down. There was this guy named Ernie. And uh, my, my grandmother's maid had given me an ODAP book. I didn't know what it was because you couldn't read it anymore on the cover. It was all scuffed up and it wasn't blue even anymore. It looked like somebody had run over it with a truck a few times and dropped it in a toilet or someplace. It was a mess. It was rubber banded and scotch taped together. So I walked in, sat down, and everybody looked at me because there were only two guys in the meeting, me and Ernie. And, and there was about 15 women in the meeting. Oh, they were all my mother. I was 15 again. <laughs> These people were going to take care of me, and I knew how to get them to. And Ernie looked at me and he said, hi, welcome. I said, thank you. He said, you ever been to this meeting before? I said, no. He took from the book, just to start with, that maybe I had been around Alan on a lot. Then I talked to him a little bit, and he realized I hadn't been around anything a lot. <laughs> but everybody else thought I had, because I fit right in. They could help me. And I quickly figured out that when Ernie started the meeting on Easy Does It, that he was reading the back of the book and looking up page numbers, and that there were so many people in the book, and there were so many listings for Easy Does It, and I flipped out and I counted out how many people, and I figured out which pages I was likely to read, and I read them in a real fast, and I memorized them, and figured out what I'm going to say about them, and when it got to me, I was brilliant. <laughs> I was brilliant. And people interrupted. They cross-talked. Can you imagine? And they said, it's so good to have someone with a lot of Al-Anon coming to our meeting. How long have you been coming? And I said, this is my first meeting. <laughs> and they all went, uh. <laughs> Holy mackerel. And Ernie knew already. And at the break, he said, here's some things we suggest. We suggest you try six of these meetings before you decide you were fine until you met us and you, we made you crazy. Second, we suggest that you go to an AA meeting, not because you might have a drinking problem. Because understand, I hadn't had a drink from the night, well, like middle of the afternoon before because I didn't want to upset the alcoholics when I took my girlfriend to the meeting the next day. So I just didn't drink. So I didn't smell like alcohol. I was probably wicked fuzzy, but I didn't smell like alcohol. I didn't have a hangover or anything like that. But he said, because when you get to AA, somebody at some point or other is going to say from the podium, when I came here, I was dying. And I didn't do anything but come here. And I'm not dying anymore. And I didn't do anything. It was done to me. And he said, if it will work for them, it'll work for you. And that is a key thing in my recovery. Is from that moment on, I didn't separate 12 steps or in these 12 steps. And these 12 traditions and those 12 traditions. And what we mean here and what we mean here. Because what I was dying of in AA and recovering from in AA is what I was dying of in Al-Anon and recovering of in Al-Anon. And to get it, all I had to do was stop drinking, and I could get it in AA. I didn't, drinking didn't have anything to do with what was going on in Al-Anon. What had to do with going on in Al-Anon is I needed an alcoholic in my life, and it could, if it wasn't going to be me, it had to be you. You follow me? I was a sick person going to programs that were to make me well, not bad, make me better, or good. So I went to that. I went to the Al-Anon meeting the next night in Framingham, which used to be in a, in a school, um, I think it was called St. Stephen's. And the next day I tried to find an Al-Anon meeting somewhere in South Natick, and they were tearing down a building and building condos, and it was, we were sitting on stacks of books <laughs> in some library in a, in a, uh, a, I don't know, some kind of convent or something. And the next night I went to an AA meeting, and I heard a guy from South Boston, and it freaked me out because nothing he did sounded like my life. And I could barely understand what he said because I was from Wellesley, and he was from South Boston. He talked like that, and he said, "So I'm down, down on L Street, you know. I'm driving my car down there, and I'm going, what's he talking about?" And he said, "And I felt so ashamed." And I went, "That's me. I feel ashamed." all the time and nobody will tell me what I'm supposed to be ashamed about the answer isn't here I don't know what it is that's wrong with me and Ernie kept patting my hands keep coming it'll be alright keep coming but he also said I needed to get a sponsor and I said what's a sponsor and he said a sponsor is not God it's a human being you pick who will remember probably what it was like to be as new as you are and he didn't say in AA or in Alan he said a sponsor 
And he said, it's somebody that you would not ever, under any circumstances, want to have a date with. <laughs> and I didn't understand what that was about, but I said, would you be my sponsor? And he said, sure. That was at my first meeting. Okay? By Wednesday, I knew I was an alcoholic. Friday, I went to another Al-Anon meeting, and I walked in, and some of the women that I met at the Monday meeting and the Sunday meeting and the Tuesday meeting and... I walked in and I said, guess what I discovered? And they said, what? I think I'm an alcoholic. And they looked at me and they said, what? You can't be an alcoholic. You're too nice. <laughs> and I had already found out that's nothing to do with it. You know, I'm, I'm a recovering person. I don't drink anymore. I got this rammed down my throat one time at a, an Al-Anon conference. This woman came out and she put on the board, she said, tell me about the alcoholic. What's it like to be an alcoholic from your point of view as al as, as wives, husbands, children, and parents of alcoholics? And we started writing things down. See if these ring a bell. I feel overwhelmed. I feel depressed. I feel angry. I blame. I steal. I lie. I'm hurt all the time. I'm sad all the time. I'm lonely all the time. I hate my life. I want to die. She said, okay, what's it feel like to be you? Same stuff. And she leans over and she said, okay, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, what do you call the duck? And I, what do you mean? She said, it's called alcoholism. That's what we suffer from. That's what Charlie suffered from his entire life before he picked up a drink. Okay? Like my, one of my kids said, drinking, getting drunk, falling down, throwing up, passing out, that's not my alcoholism. That's how I avoid dealing with my alcoholism. Okay? That's from a 15-year-old who was sober at the time. That's pretty cool. So I started going to these meetings like gangbusters. I would go to an AA meeting, then an Al-Anon meeting, sometimes both in the same day. I turned to my sponsor, Ernie, at one point and said, when are you going to tell me to do 90 meetings in 90 days? He said, you did like 120 in 90 days, you know, I, and twice or three times over. I, I went to step meetings up the wazoo. Why? Because what's the pro, what is this program to me? What, what, what do I learn here? What I learn is 12 steps and 12 traditions and everything else is somebody's opinion. By the way, this is all my opinion, and when I leave here, I could go, I don't believe that anymore. Why did I say that? <laughs> you know? So don't get all wrapped up in it. This is just one person's opinion. But when I say we admitted we were powerless and our lives have become unmanageable, that ain't opinion. That's the first step. And no matter where you go on the planet, that's the first step. And no matter how far down in recovery you've gone, that's the first step. And it's the first step in AA, Al-Anon, OA, GA, SLA, ANA. That's the first step. Okay? Now, why did I come here and talk... Why did I want to come and talk about Al-Anon? Because... Thank God I found out this is a disease. And this is one of the ways I found it out. It isn't, I'm better than you because you drank, or I'm not better than you because I drank. It's, drinking has very little to do with it, but I'm not going to get anywhere unless I'm not drinking. I'm not going to figure out what's going on if I'm anesthetized, because my brain is part of the part that gets anesthetized, and that's sick. And I'm not going to know it's sick unless it's not anesthetized. As an Al-Anoner, the way I anesthetized my brain was pick up a drunk. Find a drunk. Get addicted to this drunk. Make sure the drunk's okay. Let me tell you about Kathy. Kathy was a horseback rider. I bought her a horse. I sent her to horseback riding lessons. I sent her to England for six months. I paid for a BHSAI. I paid for training over there. I paid for $20,000 worth of clothes. I bought her a horse, as I said. I paid for $1,500 worth of repair on one hoof and $2,500 worth of repair on another hoof. And the horse was getting $600 shoes three times a month. And I was working in a camera store. Explain that. That's insane. That's crazy. You know? I needed her. And she, drunk as a skunk one day, turned to me and said, you know, without me, you'd be nothing. <laughs> and she was right. At that point in my life, without her, I didn't know what I would do with myself. And when she left my life, that's when I found this program. She gave me this program by walking out the back end of an AA meeting as I'm being sent around to the Al-Anon meeting. Now, 
when I talked about these twelve, the, these uh, four rules, don't talk, don't trust, don't tell, don't feel, how do I get better? Talk. I raised my hand in a meeting. That's what Ernie said. Raise your hand at every meeting. At least say, I'm Charlie and I'm here on purpose. <laughs> okay? I belong here. I'm in the right place. For those of you who've never been to an AA meeting, I'll just give you Ernie's suggestion. Go to an AA meeting. And when they come around, and they say, everybody's going, I'm Fred, I'm an alcoholic. I've never been so happy in all my life. <laughs> Raise your hand and say, I'm Sue and I'm glad I'm here. I'm in the right place. I belong here. Whatever. Because if you're there and you drove yourself there, you probably wanted to be there and he probably didn't. <laughs> okay? Don't tell. No, tell. It's one of the steps. We're not going to get better unless we tell someone else what's going on. We share our experience, strength and hope with each other. They couldn't shut me up. And to start with, it's all about me. But secondly... I didn't know what was wrong with me. And only by sharing and having other people share with me did a lot of stuff I had no memory of come up. And because of the program, when the memories came up, I could ask for help with them. I could go outside the program, find somebody who could help me with it and say, ah, da, 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 and they'd say, sit down. <laughs> I'll see you next week for 50 minutes and we'll work this through. But I didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what had happened to me. I didn't know why my life was the way it was. I didn't know how my twists were. And there were a lot of twists. Don't trust. Well, of course not. I'm in charge of everything, and I'm a slime. How can I have any trust for anything? I can't get anything to work anymore, and I'm in charge of getting everything to work. I'm a total failure. How can I be trustworthy? How can anybody be trustworthy? I might as well just forget it. I might as well just pull the shades, turn off the phone. Drink or not drink, it doesn't matter. Like Ernie said, you know, I don't think I'll ever drink again. I might take a bottle after I jump off the bridge, but it's jumping off the bridge that I have to watch out for because it's life that I think is the problem, and it isn't. That's not the problem. It's up here. I need to learn to trust. Well, how do I do that? How do I trust anything or anyone? Well, it takes work. It takes a process. i got to have an instruction book and then feel. How do I learn to feel? It comes as part of the process. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, it says, we saw, we felt, we believed. I saw. There you are. You're not crazy. Well, not as crazy as I am. Okay? I felt. I've already had tears come up in my eyes just here. I'm feeling. Some things have to be believed to be seen. I have to see it in myself. I have to see it in you. You have to share, I have to share. We all get better. This is cool. This is going to work. And, like my sponsor said, the first rule in enlightenment is lighten up. <laughs> you know? This is not difficult. M meditation. I love that. Somebody was talking about meditation earlier. He said, you know, I had a lot of trouble with meditation. First rule of meditation. It isn't supposed to be work. <laughs> it's the opposite. You want to see how to meditate? Where do you think we stopped learning how to meditate? Find a one-and-a-half-year-old kid. Give the child something they don't have a name for and watch them. They'll pick up a spider and go. That's meditation. They don't have a name for it. They're just in awe. I was never in awe of anything. I, everything had to fit into some plan that I was supposed to have that I didn't have. But I have a plan now. It's 12 steps. And I have a process to do it. When I first came to Al-Anon, the step book wasn't common. The Al-Anon step book wasn't around much. We used the AA step book. We used a lot of the AA big book. We read little portions of it. You know, we didn't talk about the drinking stuff and all that stuff because it really didn't apply. What really did apply was, are you willing to accept that your life is unmanageable? Period. Yeah. Really? That you can't control anything? Well, there's some things I can control. List them. Turns out I can't control anything. You know, I can't control my sweat. <laughs> you know, I'm going to sweat right through this shirt and have to go change it. I would rather not, but I will. So I can't control anything. Is there any power on earth that can relieve my, my sense of, of being useless and horrible? No. So far, you know, at 34, I hadn't found one. But I can look at you folks, and people will tell me that they got better here and that they don't feel that way anymore, and they used to feel the way I did. 
And in Al-Anon, my gosh, a, a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And then all I have to do is something real simple. I have to decide I'm ready to do whatever is suggested and do it until it works. Not do it if it works. Do it until it works. You know, a determined and persistent trial was one of the phrases in the big book, which is in a lot of Al-Anon literature. I can't get anywhere unless I determine and persistently try this. And eventually, it will work, I promise you. Now, what does that mean? Well, I was talking to a young lady outside earlier who plays the flute. I said, suppose somebody is teaching you the flute and says, there's a particularly difficult trill I want you to learn. How are you going to learn how to do that? You're going to have a determined and persistent trial until it works. That's what this program is all about. That's what that turning it over part is all about. And it works. It really does. 100%? It works 100%. I just don't do it 100%. I'm a human. I don't go in the dark. Okay. Now, here's another little thing that I think was a tremendous gift to me. And that was, I came in just at the time that a bunch of adult children's stuff was popping up everywhere. And it was brilliant because for a long time, people didn't know what adult children were. There had been fits and starts and people had talked about adult children. Um, and they didn't know what to do about it. And as a lot of people say, there wasn't a lot of recovery in adult children. There wasn't. Everybody was sitting around finding out what was wrong with them, but they had no solution. Because the solution is here in Al-Anon steps, in AA steps, in the 12 steps, the 12 traditions that, that Bill and Ann and Lois and Bob put together. Okay? And it was really cool. What they said was, when you grow up in an alcoholic family, there's a very interesting little process that takes place. And that is that everybody is sort of in a situation like a mobile. Everybody in the family is free and hanging off of a, a stick. Have you seen mobiles? You know, you have just five or six or seven or eight things hanging there. And you tap one and everything else adjusts to it. And it flows and everything is, some things can be high one minute and low another minute. But for an alcoholic family, it's like somebody walks in every so often and goes, snip, and cuts something off for an afternoon or a weekend binge. And the whole thing goes like this. And then you try to hook it back on. And when you hook it back on, it's all tied up. It's a mess. It takes weeks to unravel it. So what do you do? You get a big vat full of glue. And you dip the thing in the glue. And you let it dry so nothing moves. And then you can cut the piece off and hang it back on and cut the piece off and hang the thing back on it. And it doesn't fiddle with the family. The family looks like a family. Trouble is, it means you get assigned one spot, and that's your spot, and you can't get out of it. And the spots are real simple. There's, there's mom and dad, and we'll make a cardboard cutout family, somebody, somebody said. I'm, this is not original on my part. This is in all kinds of stuff. But mom and dad are the dyad, they call it in psychology. Basically, it's mom and dad. And one of them was a cutout alcoholic, and the other one is the cutout Alan Honor, who should be at meetings but hasn't gotten there yet. And they are like this, okay? And they f function as a unit. And that was my family. And the next thing that happens is you get a kid. Boop, and the kid comes along and says, let me in. <laughs> I want to get in this group. And the only thing they can do, since they aren't strong enough to open the refrigerator and get the beer out for themselves, the only thing they can do is become an additional enabler, okay? an additional little helper for the drunk. Third kid, the second kid comes along and goes, let me in. And the first kid says, get away. <laughs> you know, there's no more room for jobs here. This is my job. So the second kid starts making noise and breaking things, and they become the scapegoat. And it makes perfect sense. Nobody's going to pay attention to me unless I can make enough noise for the whole family to go, what are you doing? And if the whole family turns and says, what are you doing? They're not going to pay attention to the drunk, which is really helpful to the drunk who can go out and get drunk. So you've got a scapegoat over here, and you've got mom. We'll make mom the enabler and dad the drunk. You know, nice cardboard cutout cartoon family. And you've got the little enabler. So you've got those three, and then the scapegoat over there being a pain in the neck. Third kid comes along and goes, this is screwed up. I'm going to my room. <laughs> and they go up, and they turn the color of wallpaper, and they put on headphones, and they take LSD. Because <laughs> life just doesn't, is crazy. And they write poetry, and they love being alone, because the family's screwed up. The, the fourth kid comes along, the fourth kid goes, what's going on? And everybody goes, nothing. Kid goes, what do you mean nothing? They go, nothing. Everything's fine. And the fourth kid goes, doesn't look fine to me. And they go, oh, shut up. You're too young. You don't know anything. That's the baby. That's the mascot. That's the kid that can provide levity in a family that's tearing apart. 
So what does that mean? You basically get a cutout roll and you're stuck there. Now, the weird thing is there's a good part to every one of those roles, except the dying from drinking drunk and the adult parent. Okay? The adult parent needs to become an adult parent, not you know, an attachment to an alcoholic. And the alcoholic needs to sober up and get healthy. But the kids, every one of them has benefits. It's wonderful. The hero, the hero can defer and say, you know, I don't have time to break down right now. I have to stop the bleeding. I will cry later. The, the hero can say, this is not my job. Here's the checklist. <laughs> you know, the hero can say, we can't do that because this will happen and this will happen. They can keep their emotions in check. They don't have to explode. They can take responsibility. Scapegoat? Scapegoat knows how to say, no, this is not my problem. They know how to put up a, a barrier and say, you can't get any, that's it, I'm done with you. Okay? They know how to get mad and own it. I am mad at you. <laughs> and you know they're mad at you. Okay? The lost child knows how to be alone. Doesn't always have to have a crowd applauding. Doesn't always have to get, you know, thrills. Can be quiet, can be contemplative. And also has the time and energy, because they're not wrapped up in the hoopla, to keep track of everything. So they're really good record keepers. And the mascot, the littlest kid, that mascot can let things slide and say, hey, lighten up. <laughs> this, this is not that big a deal. I know the dog died, but you know, there are lots of dogs. We can get another dog. And I love the dog as much as you, but actually he was kind of bad. He was pissing on the carpet a lot, you know. And everybody goes, oh, you are so funny. I mean, everybody's falling apart and you're so happy. What's wrong with you? Nothing. But the problem is, in an alcoholic family, you have to stay in that role. You have to stay in that role. Because if you get out of that role, it screws everything up. It takes that lumpy thing and makes it slide. So I was at this little conference one time, a bunch of Alan honors sitting around, and somebody said, why don't we all spread out and become who we are? Want all the heroes in one spot, all the mascots in another, all the scapegoats in another, and all the... What's the last one? Oh, lost children, the one everybody forgets. Lost children somewhere else, right? Got 10 minutes to do it. We look up, and there's a woman standing in the back where the coffee was with a clipboard that says, heroes meet here. <laughs> Okay, in the corner, there's a whole bunch of people sitting on tables, like this, scapegoats, <laughs> okay? There's a whole bunch of people sitting on the floor in front of the dais, like this, like little, I don't know, like Girl Scouts and <laughs> Boy Scouts, <laughs> mascots. And there's a whole bunch of people wandering around going, lost children. And he said, okay, come up with the three things for your role that are good, that are helpful, and write them down. And then we did. And then the person said, now take the three things from each role and make a list of 12 things. And if you want to know what it's like to be healthy, that's healthy. If you can do, in any given situation, have a choice to do any of those things, that's what recovery is all about. But to do it, you have to share with other people. You have to find out what makes a hero tick, what makes a scapegoat tick, what makes a lost child tick. And I got that. I was, in my family, the scapegoat mascot. I was walking out of an Alana meeting at Leonard Morse Hospital one day, and some, we'd had a disagreement about something at a business meeting. And <laughs> if you want to really find out how people, what people's uh, roles were in their family, have a business meeting. <laughs> Try to arrange a uh, conference or something. It's fun. And we're walking out, and my friend Barb, who was a hero, and an oldest child, oldest female child, four master's degrees or something crazy. She, we're walking down and, and she said, you seem upset. And I said, I am and I don't know why. I remember when I got upset, it's when you said, well, that's your opinion. And she went, what, what does it make you think? And I said, that my opinion is valueless. And she said, it isn't. Oh, the only person in, a, in an alcoholic family, the only person's opinion that has value is the hero. Everybody else in the family has to convince the hero to turn and have their opinion. And the hero doesn't turn. <laughs> the hero knows their opinion is valid. They also uh, suspect that yours might be valid, but they're not going to change their opinion. And everybody else in the family thinks they have to change everybody else's opinion or their opinion isn't valid. 
this makes for crazy thinking. <laughs> and that's the way I was. And having people in the program to share with, that kind of vulnerability is wonderful. It's wonderful. And the only way I could do it is because of the power of, of the groups. There's a couple other things, and then I'll stop. And, and um, we can open it up if somebody wants to ask a question or share. That would be great. But um, one of the things about this program that you hear a lot about is love. And there's a phrase that says, of the love of God and man we knew not at all. This is a spiritual program. It's not what's the spiritual side of the program. This is a spiritual program. And the process, the recipe for getting spiritual is in the steps. That's, that's what saved my neck. That's what saved my life. Is finding out that if I will do the steps as they're put out and not be silly about it, just do them. You know, get them done and do them again and do them again as a way of life and just keep wailing away at them. I'm never going to do them perfect, but every one of them is good enough to be done wrong. You know? um, that finding a life that's a spiritually based life is the process. And if it's spiritually based, things that are amazing will happen. I heard a speaker earlier today talk about miracles in his life that he's seen. I've seen miracles that if I tell them to you, you're going to go, no. That couldn't happen, and they did. Now, I have a friend who had um, what was it? Uh, she had panic attacks and a prolapsed mitral valve in her heart, and she had to pay for her own insurance for 20 years. And she came to Al-Anon, and she went went to Al-Anon for seven or eight years, and she was having her physical, her annual physical, to see how much more they were going to charge her for her insurance. And the doctor comes back looking like she's seen a ghost. And my friend thought, "Oh my God, something's broken." And the doctor said, I don't understand, but you don't have a prolapsed mitral valve. And she said, I don't. <laughs> she said, no. And didn't you tell me you stopped having panic attacks? And she said, I did. What do you mean I don't have a prolapsed mitral valve? And she said, well, it's not there. And my friend said, can I see my medical file? <laughs> it's like this thick. And she said, why have I been paying more for my insurance for 20 years if I don't have one since it can't cure itself? And the doctor said, I don't understand. I'm getting a second opinion. And rather than have it get published, they just paid her back all the money she'd spent on insurance. And I said, what happened? She said, I haven't got a clue, but I keep going to meetings. <laughs> okay? um, things like that have happened to me and to people I love. But I had the best, the absolute best slap in the face about what this program is about. It's so simple, it's frightening. Uh, I went to a men's retreat, and, and remember, this was during the adult children phase, and so we had sort of open men's retreats. There were men from AA, there were men from Al-Anon, there were just men who came because they knew somebody. And we're all sitting around in sweatsuits, smoking cigars, which you could do in those days at a Catholic retreat, and uh, a bunch of people sitting around, and this nun walks in, and she was as wide as she was tall, and she was full regalia, and she came in like she was on a skateboard. And she opened her mouth, and I thought it was a truck driver in there. It's like, hello. <laughs> so, you want to know how to live a happy life? You want to know how to be happy and healthy and not have any more problems like your alcoholism and your family and all that stuff? No problem at all. Easy as pie. We can cut this short. She goes up and writes on the board, pray incessantly. <laughs> and the reaction was not as, as gleeful as yours. It was sort of men, men with cigars going... What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Pray and I got stuff to do. And she said, Yeah, pray incessantly. And she looked around. She said, You don't like that, huh? Hmm. Tell you what, try this. And it was one of those blackboards that flips over, you know, with a wooden thing and the wheels. And she flipped it over. And on the other side, it said, Make your life a prayer. That made me cry. It still does. Can I get to the point in my life where what I do has God driving it to the best of my ability? I was talking to a young lady earlier. I've done a lot of work with, with very young kids in, in, in AA and Al-Anon and Alateen. And there's a, there's a very strange thing that happens, and that is when young girls come into the program, especially young girls, the women back off. They back away from them. This breaks my heart because the girls, as 15 and 16 and 17-year-old girls will do, they make themselves up because they don't want to look bad. 
Nobody wants to look bad. And they come into a meeting, and long-term women will go, this person isn't serious, because they can't see the pain right away. They can't see what's going, what would drive a kid to come to an Al-Anon meeting or an AA meeting at 15. They, don't, they see the makeup, and they see the skinny little legs or the you know, halter top, and they back away. And the men who have sponsors are dragged away. <laughs> and the only people who go up to say hello to them are the boys without sponsors, the men without sponsors. The people who don't have a program will walk right up and go, Hi, honey. How long have you been coming? And there's no question in their mind that they don't know this girl and they don't care about this girl. They are in pain and they can't do anything about it. But if that girl has programs, she can look at that person and say, you're just like me. There's pain in there. And you don't know what to do about it any more than I did until I did the steps. So I tell you what, let me give my number to your sponsor. And the guy will go, what? You say, you don't have a sponsor? Let's find you a sponsor. And you go and you take the guy over and you find him a sponsor. And then he's safe and he gets better and you're safe and you get better and you made your life a prayer. People ask me now, how do you do what you do when you do it? Because I do a lot. And I do stuff at peril. You know, A lot of people say, you're crazy to do that. And Mark and Carol will, will buy for that. You know, There's seven or eight girls who lived at my house for several years. And they're not my kids. They're somebody else's kids. They weren't bad enough to get locked up. And they weren't good enough to get better because nobody wanted to deal with them. And right now, five out of seven of them are sober in AA. One of them has nine years sobriety and she's 26. That's pretty freaky, okay? That's the girl everybody said, oh, forget it. She'll never get sober. I didn't get her sober. What got her sober was you people. Because she went to Al-Anon, adult children, AA, NA, any A she could get her hands on, she went to. She's loony as a tune. She's crazy as a bed bug, and she's trying to live a spiritual life every day. And it's, it's murderous <laughs> for her. It's just murderous. She'd rather get a tattoo. But, but she tries. And that's the process that we're in here. That's the process that I am in favor of. That's the process that I think will save people's lives, is if I can understand that spirituality is asking God first, what am I supposed to want? What am I supposed to do? Is this the right thing? To get to that point when my head says, no, you got to do this first. You got to do that first. This is more important. That's more important. Those are the things that this program has slid to the side over and over and over again. It turns out what Charlie thought was important was of no value at all. And what Charlie learned in the program was things I didn't even know existed become much, become the most important things in my life. Today, I, I, um, I'm not doing anything like what I thought I would be doing. I'm not living where I thought I would be living. Uh, when I got out of college, where I was headed, I thought, was Broadway and the movies. And the people that I was hobnobbing around with, one of them, for example, in college, is, is the voice of Channel 2. You know, Will Lyman was one of, the, one of, my, one of my classmates. Um, Starsky from Starsky and Hutch, the, you know, Paul Michael Glazer. Famous actor, very famous. I wanted, I thought, what they do. Instead, I got a bunch of teenage kids. I got Sober in the Sun and Half Moon Sober Festival and campouts, and I got meetings, 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 and I got step work, and I got sponsees, and I got sponsors, and I got people like this sitting in this room, and Carol and Mark and Jeremy and the rest of these folks here. Unbelievable that these people are here. We are all miracles. And if you've ever felt anything like I've felt, look in the mirror and say, you know, you are a miracle. God don't make junk. There's a reason that I'm here, and that's my job, to find it out. That's my job, to find out how to make what I do into a prayer. Washing dishes. You know, ask any mother who's had a child vomit on their lap, and they clean it up, and it's really annoying, and you wouldn't trade not having to clean up vomit by giving rid of, rid of the child. There's no way. It becomes part of the process of loving. Loving is what it's all about. And if I make my life a prayer, like that little nun said, I don't have a problem. I have situations that I need to pray about. And the answer comes.
Um, finally, one of my kids, my daughter, I adopted her when she was 35, but she was the first kid who came to my house. Um, she was in a psych hospital, and she got a really nasty psychiatrist, and I wanted to kill him because he was really mean to her, and he did nasty things and, did, and lied and cheated. And, and I, want, I called a friend of mine, a lawyer, and I said, we've got to get her out of there. You've got to get her out of there. And he said, well, I'll check on it. He called me back a few minutes later and said, there's nothing you can do. Go to a meeting. <laughs> I said, but, but, but. He said, go to a meeting. There's nothing you can do. I said, but, but, but. He said, go to a meeting. Now, understand, at that point, my daughter had been in a psych hospital pretty much every October of her life. And several times a year for the previous four or five years. And serious stuff. I mean, serious stuff. And so I went to my meeting, and I pissed, and I moaned, and I... I whined and I screamed and I kicked and and I came home and I got a phone call from my daughter and she said, guess what? I said, what? She said, I met somebody here and I thought, oh God, a boyfriend? <laughs> she said, no, uh, I met the head of the hospital. She wants to do my aftercare. She found this therapist for me out in Stockbridge somewhere or somewhere out there and she says he's really good. She never went back to the psych hospital. She's never done that. She went to see this guy for nine solid years. Nine years she went to see this guy. Had I had my way, Charlie's way, she never would have met this woman. She never would have found that, that therapist. She doesn't live in Massachusetts. She has to drive across the state line to get to see him. And he knew what was wrong with her. And he fixed her. Now, how did I arrange that? I didn't. I let... I let somebody tell me, go pray, go to a meeting, say your prayers, get out of it, Wrap, unwrap your hands and let God take care of your life. And he did. Had I done it, I would have screwed it up. Whenever you're thinking that this can't work, remember stuff like that happens all the time in this program. And it happens so often we don't even recognize it. I'd like to thank everybody for being here and listening to me ramble on like this. And I hope that something I said might have helped somebody because um, that's my job. I'm, I'm supposed to stay in the program and help others. And with that, I will shut up. Thank you.